Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Gillian Dumas. On the one hand, an attorney specializing in sexual abuse cases, and on the other, an avid book reader and commentator. Listeners should note that our conversation may be distressing for some, as Gillian's work involves sexual abuse. Our conversation today has been recorded by Zoom. We're not reading books or writing about reading at the Rose City Reader or adventuring into book discussions online. Gillian Dumas practices law in Portland at her own firm, Dumas and Vaughan. Gillian represents adults who were sexually abused or exploited as kids by trusted adults, usually church, school, or Boy Scout leaders. Dumas is licensed in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and California, and she and her business partner often bring lawsuits in other states, working with lawyers across the country. Gillian, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Stuart. So would you mind describing the work that you, uh, you do at your law firm? Of course. So my law partner and I represent, like you said, primarily we represent adults who were sexually abused when they were kids in lawsuits against the organizations that allowed the abuse to happen. And like you said, those were um, institutions of trust that the children were involved in in some way. Usually they are churches, schools, or other youth-serving organizations like the Boy Scouts, and the, those organizations violated the trust that the kids put in them by allowing adults in the organizations to um, molest the kids, uh, sexually exploit them in some way. A lot of the cases involve the Boy Scouts or the organizations that sponsored the, the troop or the Cub Scout pack or the uh, Explorer post. And that would be a lot of times that's the Mormon church because they're a large sponsor of uh, their one of the biggest sponsors of Boy Scouts and um, other churches or organizations. And then um, a lot of our cases don't involve Boy Scouts. They'd be just, um, we have a lot of cases going on right now in Oregon against the Assemblies of God Church that had a similar program called the Royal Rangers that was based on the Boy Scouts. Some people call it Boy Scouts for God, um, the Royal Rangers. And then um, we've had cases against Seventh-day Adventists, the Methodist Church, and private schools. We have a lot of cases going on right now in Portland against a school called the Catlin Gable School, which is a large private school here, or I shouldn't say large, but a prestigious private school here in Portland that's been around for decades. They just released a report last December um, identifying over 20 teachers and staff members um, as being sexually inappropriate or sexually abusing children going back to the 1960s. And so um, we represent 20 former students of that school in claims against the school. So most of our cases, like I said, involve adults. And that might be something we want to talk about because a lot of states, most states have extended statutes of limitations to let adults bring claims, recognizing that uh, abuse survivors seldom talk about what happened to them, especially men. So they, it takes years and years and years for somebody to come forward and want to make a claim or even tell anyone what happened to them. And so most of our clients are in their 40s or even 50s by the time they come to us 
and um, many times we're the first people they have ever told about what happened to them. I'm sure I am like many people who in some ways are just astounded and, and don't know where to start because the, the subject matter is, is so traumatic. Uh, it's, it's a big topic and it's a big, and it's a, yeah, right. It, there's a lot there. I, I think what I'd like to do is ask about um, perhaps how these um, situations evolved for these um, survivors who, who were children and then the, perhaps the journey they took before they even get to call you or reach out to you. That's a great question. And that goes back to what I was saying about how long it takes for some of these people, most of these people to come forward. Um, There have been studies done that show that the average age of an abuse survivor coming forward is 52. So it takes so much. And usually what happens is, and I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know exactly the mechanism, but I've worked with so many hundreds of survivors. So what I have learned is that when the abuse happens when they're a kid, they dissociate or they lock it away or they, they just, they just you know, they do what they can to get through the situation at the time. They put it away in their head and just try to not think about what is happening then. They do what they can to get through it. And then they put it away and get on with their life the best they can, get through some turn to coping mechanisms like alcohol, drugs, um, anger, violence, whatever. Some get depressed, anxious, all of the things that abuse survivors go through to just get on with their life. And then something happens as they get older. Either they develop the psychological strength to finally deal with what happened to them, or just something comes uh, into their mind that they can finally say like, oh my gosh, I I need to deal with this. Like their kids turn the same age they were when they were abused. Um, They see other people coming forward. Uh, They even, maybe they see the news stories about Catholic cases in the news, or they watch that movie Spotlight or, or something, something happens in their mind. And this like light bulb goes off in their head. We call it the aha moment. They, something happens and they say like, wait a minute, you know, I'm not an alcoholic because I'm an alcoholic or I'm not a, uh, um, I didn't have four marriages because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a serial marrying person or all my wives were bad. All this stuff was related to what happened to me as a kid, or maybe it's related to what happened to me as a kid, or maybe I need to start thinking about what happened to me as a kid. And it wasn't just something that happened and I shoved it away, but it was important. And I need to talk to somebody about it. And I need to do something about it. And then they usually start Googling or they, you know, or they have their wife or their kid or somebody and they start Googling and usually they Google their perpetrator's name um, or they just Google Catholic abuse or Boy Scout abuse or something, but they Google something and they find out that their um, perpetrator was arrested or that other people were molested by him or they find his name in a Boy Scout file, um, something. Anyway, and then they start talking and they, and a lot of times that's when they find like somebody like me, they find my name or they find a case that we filed or they find some other attorney or something. And then they give a call. So for example, they would call me and they say like, I see that you sued the Boy Scouts or I see that you have a case involving, you know, you know my perpetrator 
abused somebody else and you sued the church because of that. And then they, they say like, I want to talk to you because the same thing happened to me. And, and that's, I mean, we see that over and over. That's, that's the pattern. So then what might be an example of a, um, a fairly typical progression of what happens next? And, and sometimes they've gone to a counselor first and after a while they come to me or another attorney. Sometimes if they've come to me, then we talk to them about what their options are. Sometimes that is to bring a claim. They want accountability for what happened to them. They want some kind of justice. They want a wrong righted. Um, sometimes we can help them if the statute of limitations in their state is allows for them to bring a claim. Like I said, so some states have extended statutes of limitations, meaning the deadline for when they can bring a civil case or a criminal case. Um, I don't do criminal work, but so roughly what we do is walk them through the process. We encourage them to report to the police, even if the statute of limitations has passed, even if their, um, if their perpetrator is dead, we still tell them to report to the police. We just think the police should be aware of even historic crimes. And if the perpetrator is still alive, we want the police to know about the perpetrator. Even if the statute of limitations for that person's crime has passed, we want them to report to the police. We tell them what their options are in terms of filing a civil lawsuit, which depends on what the statute of limitations is in the state where they're, where the abuse took place. And sometimes it's a hard and fast deadline, like uh, 24 years old, you know, you can file a claim before you're 24 years old. Lots of states, it's um, you have to file a case within three years or five years of when you make the connection between the abuse and problems in your life. So that's a very flexible standard and it kind of depends. And that goes back to that aha moment I was talking about. Um, and then we and then we talk to them about it. And then we always encourage them to go talk to a counselor, um, whether they're going to whether they can bring a case or not, whether they talk to the police or not. We always encourage them to go talk to some kind of counselor. And whether they take that advice or not, we don't, we don't know. Certainly if they come to us and, we're a, and hire us to be their lawyer, then we always either try to refer them to a counselor who we know specializes in working with adult survivors of sex abuse and try to make sure that they're in counseling at least while they're in litigation because litigation itself is stressful. So we try to get them in to see a counselor.
you've, I think, mentioned some different rationales as to why these survivors may want to take some legal action with your counsel. It seems that redress or, or satisfaction of the trauma, some resolution to the trauma that your clients have experienced might take many forms. And, and so on the one hand, um, it's not just, for example, achieving um, a successful court outcome, and it's not necessarily just a financial form of redress. Maybe it also includes um, just having the story made known or holding someone accountable. So these are the ways my, my head is imagining what might be a successful outcome, but I don't know what that really means. What is a successful outcome for you and or for your clients? That's an excellent question. Um, so a civil lawsuit in, does involve filing the case and that alone lets the survivor tell their story. Um, it also allows them to tell their story almost always in a safe way in that they don't have to use their name. They let, get to use a pseudonym. Um, that would be like a John Doe or a Jack Doe or some form of their initials. And that's good because they can tell their story without telling the world, you know, I was raped when I was a child um, or I was molested when I was a child. Uh, but they do want the truth to come out finally because they haven't told anyone for their whole life. And this is their opportunity to finally tell the story and get that beast off their back. And they get to tell that story when they file the case because it's spelled out in the complaint that they file. And that alone is a, a big relief for them. So just taking that step can be good, whatever happens with the case. Now, there are some limitations. I mean, civil litigation is just one tool in a toolbox because they can only sue for money. They can't sue to get their childhood back. So, um, and they can't really sue to get an apology, you know? So when I say that they'll get accountability, they'll get accountability because the organization that they're suing will have to, at the end of the day, have to write a check. And it doesn't really matter, and I tell every client this, it doesn't really matter what the amount of the check is. As soon as they write that check, they're taking responsibility for what happened but that there'll never be a real apology. And I have lots of clients who want an apology and I tell them, you know, don't, don't wait for that because, you know, that's just, that's not really going to happen. You'll get an apology that says, we're sorry if something bad happened to you, but I've never seen a real, you know, we are sorry that we did something bad to you. From what I've read, the most high-profile recent illustration of that would be your work with survivors of sexual abuse from various Boy Scouts troops mm -hmm. and the declaration of bankruptcy by Boy Scouts of America. Right. And even, even then, the Boy Scouts have made a public statement that says, we are sorry for all the boys who are abused in scouting. We are sorry that individuals took advantage of our program to abuse boys. That's not the same thing as saying that the Boy Scouts as an organization did anything wrong. They say, we are sorry that volunteers and, and, and employees in our organization did things wrong. 
And again, that's not the same thing as saying that the Boy Scouts as an organization had a system in place and policies in place that failed to protect children. Um, the Boy Scouts, you know, kept files on volunteers that were removed. They called them the ineligible volunteer files or even the perversion files. And they kicked these people out when they abused children, but they didn't tell anybody that these files existed. They didn't tell anybody, you will get kicked out and put in one of these files if you molest a child. And because they didn't let anybody know that this system existed, child molesters continued to target the organization thinking that it was a safe place. Local troops didn't, oftentimes didn't report um, child molesters to the national organization to create a file because they didn't know that the national organization was keeping these files. So, you know, the, then in that case, a bad guy could move from one troop to the next troop because he never got reported to the national office. So it, it was a national, national Boy Scouts office failure to have better policies, failure to let the local people know that these policies existed, failure to implement a really good system that led so many boys to being abused. And the Boy Scouts have never apologized for that. For, for the real problem. So that's, that's why these institutional so-called apologies are never real apologies. And I tell my clients, don't expect any more than that. Why do you do this work? Um, you know, I practiced law for 28 years and I've spent half of those years, the last 14 years doing this work. I do it because I, I love these guys. I love how it changes their life. I mean, law work is challenging. All of it is. And so it's intellectually fun. It's, it's um, exciting. It's competitive. I like that. <laughs> uh, but these cases actually do, I, I see the change in the, in my clients' lives. The earlier work was, um, you know, I would help somebody with their real estate problem. Or I would help them with their business problem. And, and yes, that made a difference in their life in that they either recovered the money that they were owed or they worked out their differences with their business partners or whatever. And that was, that was good, but it didn't fundamentally change the way somebody viewed themselves or lived their life. You know, these, 
these men, when they tell me like, you know, I've never, I've never told anybody this. I've never been able to even talk about it. I've never been able to say the words. And then they can say, you know, what happened to them and they get the words out. It's like they, they just leave it there. They, they are able to finally talk about it and the world doesn't come crashing to an end. And it's like this realization to them that like, oh my God, I've been carrying this around for 30 years or whatever. And it's not, I, I, they just like drop it. It's just amazing. And I've seen it so many times and that's so much better than anything else I've ever done. I mean, so much more personally fulfilling to me. How do you cope? I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't potentially make you despair for humanity or become deeply cynical about, about the human condition. Yeah. The glib answer is that we, um, I have a law partner who shares my, um, gallows sense of humor and we uh it's good that it's just the two of us and the legal assistant in our office because we swear a lot so um and we yell and scream and swear a lot and then um and then the serious answer is that i pray a lot so um so there are two two sides of that i have plenty of hobbies to keep uh keep my mind off work i definitely i definitely switch off from I was going to say from office to home, but those are, those are the same thing these days. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Gillian Dumas, an attorney specializing in sexual abuse cases and an avid book reader and commentator. Our conversation today has been recorded by Zoom. I'm wondering if you have any observations about the current moment we're in, for example, the the, the Me Too movement, and uh, sexual abuse of, of women, but also how that's touching upon the work that you do and, and, and how you're seeing any shifts in, um, I don't know, public attitudes and social attitudes to, to this subject. I think we're still, um, when it comes to Me Too and the attitudes towards sexual assault of adults and sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace, for example, the Me Too 
the Me Too things, I think we are still in the middle of the, um, still sorting everything out, how that's going to work. And that all has to do with, you know, the power difference between men and women in the workplace, but between superiors and subordinates in the workplace. The law was set, but then all of the scandals broke with the Me Too, and now the law is in transition. And I think we're going to see things shake out that are going to be different, and we're still in the middle of that. Everybody talked about, oh, there's going to be a pendulum, you know, we were in the, you know, the everything goes, uh, sexual revolution, free swinging days, and then it swung to the Me Too, and then we're going to see a backlash and this and that. I don't think we've seen any kind of backlash. It hasn't been that pendulum, but now it's just a mess. I don't think anybody knows what quite is going on. And we're seeing that also with like the um, Title IX stuff on college campuses. Yeah, it needed a big reform. There was a lot of, you know, the, there is a rape culture on a lot of campuses and, and women were being sexually assaulted and it was, and it was bad. But I think that it did swing. I, I, I personally never understood why college campuses were adjudicating sexual assaults. Even my law partner had to tell me because that's Title IX law. Because I was saying like, why aren't they just calling the police? Why aren't why aren't they turning those over? And she had to explain to me that's Title IX law, and I was like, I, I didn't understand that. But that turned into be just a huge mess, and now it swung back the other way to say like, no, you have to give full. If colleges are going to do Title IX, you know, investigations and adjudications, they now have to give. Uh, due process rights to the accused, which kind of makes sense. But on the other hand, there's a backlash against that idea. So I think we're just now in a stage where just everything is up in the air and it's a mess, both for Me Too, Title IX on campuses, whatever it is, we haven't seen nearly the end of what's going to happen. Uh, on the one hand, hashtags uh, just a, a remarkably potent heuristic or shortcut to um, encapsulating something important. And yet, we also exist in a time when everything is so rigid and black and white, um, good or bad. And most of our human lives are very far from, you know, on, off, on, off. It's, it's all much more um, confusing and uh, organic than that. It is. My Twitter feed, and maybe this is the segue to books, and I, but because of my work and my, and my hobby, my, my book blog, my Twitter feed is about half sex abuse and, and law and half books. And I saw some tweet yesterday that was an independent author tweeting about this. It's not normally my Twitter feed. I don't know how it showed up, but some tweet that was like a semi-erotic romance novel about reluctant co-eds. And it about blew my mind because I was getting all these, you know, like uh, Me Too, Believe Women hashtags, and then Reluctant Coed, Semi-Erotica, Independent Published Romance Novel. And I'm thinking like, just what, what you said, like how there are so many parts of everybody's lives and how do we reconcile, how do we reconcile like real life with all its parts? Because people are out there thinking all kinds of things and living all kinds of lives and doing all kinds of stuff. And yeah, and I don't know. <laughs>
you know, we also live in an age of hashtags and, you know, and for me, I want justice for everyone who's been sexually assaulted or sexually abused, but I don't think it does survivors any favors to have hashtags that just say believe women because we have to have cases across the country. We have to bring cases in front of juries, whether they're in red states, blue states, red counties, blue counties. And that's not, that's not the legal standard. When we go into court, <laughs> I don't get to put a witness on the stand and say, you know, the jury is not instructed. You believe her because she's a woman. I, the, the standard is you believe every witness because they're credible and if you don't believe them if they're not credible and then they're instructed in how to follow the law and I have to prove my case more likely than not. And so when we get into these, you know, social media battles over whether we should believe someone just because they're a woman or just because they make an accusation, that's not helpful. You know, um, so I kind of, I've been staying out of those social media battles. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, but I I see that and I just say, oh, let's not burn down the, you know, let, let's not burn it all down before we've actually figured out, like, let's have a constructive look at how women should be treated in the workplace, how men and women should interact with each other in social life and and in cultural situations everywhere, not just the workplace and not just on col in college, without hashtagging it to death. You've mentioned books. You are a passionate reader. You're a committed sharer of your reactions around books. Uh, um, I've read that you're an indefatigable list maker. Um, so perhaps maybe the place to start is the Rose City Reader. You know, what is that and where did that spring from? So when I started about this, when I started doing sex abuse law, I also figured I needed a good break. So I started a book blog called Rose City Reader. 
And part of it, most of it was, I didn't know what book blogs were. That was 2008. I don't know if anybody knew what a book blog was, but um, it was mostly to keep track of the book lists that I was doing. I had just finished the last book on the Modern Library's Top 100 novels of the 20th century, that list that came out in 1999 when all of the top 100 lists were coming out for the millennium. And I had, I had read all of them. So I finished every book on that list. I couldn't believe it. And, and then I, uh, there were all these spinoff lists from it. I wanted to keep track. So I started a book one to keep track of these lists. And it's, been, and it's still going. And if I get busy at work, I, I'm sometimes kind of I'm lazy about the blog and when I'm less busy at work, I blog more and, and, but it's still there. And, um, I try to focus, I kind of like try to use it for my own use to keep track of these lists, but, uh, to help promote some local authors when I can, or, um, small independent presses. I put a lot of books up that are from the Oregon state, University Press and a couple other um, local local presses. Forest Avenue Press is one that I put their books up a lot, and a couple of other uh, small presses and um, indie authors send me their books every once in a while. And so I, I do it both for uh, for those purposes and just my own my own keeping track of what I read. Why is it that books have such a central place in your life? I have been a reader since I first read Hop on Pop when I was three, and um, uh, my my folks got me reading at an early age. In I grew up in Omaha, and my um, parents turned me into a big reader by speaking um, by by hitting me where I live. They paid me ten cents for every book I finished. I don't know why other parents did not figure out that trick. It was, it was brilliant. I mean, it, it was like, other than like giving me bacon every time I read a book and they couldn't have figured out a better way to get a kid to read. So they'd give me 10 cents for every book I read or a quarter if I read a classic, which was also good because then I was reading like Treasure Island and, you know, whatever like kid books that, uh, kids would read that were classics, and it was great. And my parents were also big readers, so uh, you know, I let, they I saw them reading, you know, all the all the things that get kids to read. So I've, I've been reading forever. And I went to um, I went to Mount Calvary Lutheran School when I was little there on Leavenworth, um, and there were three classes in every classroom, so there were a lot of downtime when the teacher was teaching the other class and we'd be sitting there and I, I was next to the bookshelf. So I went through all the Nancy Drews and that, so I could go home and get, you know, 40, 50 cents, 60 cents every day after school. I was rich. This might sound more crass than I in, intended to come out, but um, I know that this is pleasure for you, but is, is, is this a vocation or um, something you would monetize now? Would you ever um, commit yourself in some way to, books as a profession? I, I don't see a way to monetize it. You know, the, um, in the years that I've had it, I've always linked the books on the blog to Amazon. I know there are some people who hate Amazon, but I link them to Amazon so that I can keep track of if anybody ever clicks on it, 
so I can just see how many people are, are reading and doing it. And I, and I can see also who reads the blog. And people are reading the blog. They're not clicking through very often. Or if they are, they click through, but they don't buy the book because um, in the 12 or 13 years I've had the blog, uh, I've made $18 from people buying books my blog. So I, I don't think I'm going to give up my day job anytime soon. But uh, I, yeah, I mean, I don't run ads on it. I know a lot of people do, and I don't begrudge them for um, running ads on their blog by any means. But I, I don't do it on my blog just because it's a hobby. I don't see a way to, um, I don't see a, a path to make it a real hustle. But um, we'll see. When I retire from law, maybe I'll figure something out. <laughs> My father used to acquire books and uh, he would typically write something inside the cover about when and where he acquired the book and, and that sort of thing. And uh, I remember when he retired he, some years ago now, but he, he plucked out a book and started reading it and, and he'd bought it something like 25 years before that. So it had sat there waiting for him patiently. <laughs> And I, I wonder if, if uh, in some ways this describes you. Are you a collector of books? Uh, uh, I don't want to use the word hoarder, but sort of an, uh, you, you accumulate them and you don't get to them yet. Absolutely. I, because I have all these lists that I want to read the book because like it won a prize or somebody told me to read it or whatever, I have, um, yeah, I have a couple thousand books. Some of them are behind me here. And, um, yeah, that are stacked up that waiting for me to read them. And I, I go through, you know, maybe a hundred or so a year and I've got 2000 on my TBR shelves waiting for me to read. So I've got, you know, at least another 20 years worth to read. Knock, knock wood. I am around long enough to get through them all. So yeah, I, I definitely collect them faster than I can read them. Does it daunt you that the likelihood is that um, if you just do the math on this, it, it's almost certain that you, you will never be able to read all the books that you want to before the statistical likelihood of your, your passing? Yeah. Um, well, so far I am still, so, so far I think I'm still right in there. So I think I can get them through and I'm hoping I, I up my consumption rate um, when I retire. So my goal is to still finish them. I'm too German to not plan on finishing them before, before I go. So yeah. So right now I'm, I'm still in there and I think I'm, I'm, my idea is that I might like slow down acquiring them so that I can like keep time it like, like, okay, I'm going to get them all done. Now, I think you're a print, reader and consumer. I think from what I've seen, you tend to avoid ebooks, audiobooks. I'm a big audiobook. I love reading with my ears. So I print I would do print books and audiobooks. Audio when I'm um like doing chores or walking around or something. And then um but I don't do ebooks. I can't I spend my day in front of a screen so I don't um read on a screen. I think uh I, I may have read your top ten books of all time list. And I, I think it shifts a little bit perhaps over time. Um, and I, I feel like I have a bone to pick with you um, because I, I, I think Ian McEwan's Amsterdam is on there. It's a divisive one, isn't it? I know some people hate it. I love it. 
I, I, I actually really enjoyed it, but I don't quite know why of all his books, it's Amsterdam and not for me on Chesil Beach or Atonement. Both of those are great. I love both of them on Chesil. I don't think I'd ever get a book spoiler that has child abuse in it into my top 10 list. Um, but I, I love a funny book. I love a book with a twist, you know, and, and Amsterdam is so clever and so funny. I mean, it is really, really funny. And so that, that's why that one gets a, that, that one made my list. I, I, it's one of the few books I've read more than once. So I, I, damn, it is funny. And so it made my list. So thanks for playing along with me there. I, uh, I just finished reading uh, Cockroach. It's his latest little fun novella about the absurdity that is Brexit. Oh, um, I have to read that. He borrows from uh, this, this Kafka idea of um, metamorphosis and um, the PM becomes, um, absorbs uh, this cockroach that takes over his, uh, his body form. And um, anyway, it's, it's very funny and um, absurd and ridiculous, which is exactly what Brexit is. Um, so. oh, I'll have to read that one right away. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to add to your list. I can, I can feel the weight of the show. It's just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned uh, growing up in Omaha, and um, I know that for most of us, our lives are shaped by many of the experiences we encounter when we're um, younger, and then what happens to us later in life. So what was life like for you growing up? It was, it was lovely. I had a, a great childhood with my um, mom, dad, my sister, who's two years younger than me. We grew up in uh, Omaha. My parents turned 40, though, and decided that they wanted to leave Nebraska while they were still young enough to enjoy it and moved us out to Oregon because my mother's grandparents retired out here. He drove the train, Union Pacific train, from Omaha to you know Portland. And so she had spent her childhood summer vacations visiting her grandparents out here in Oregon and knew how pretty it was. And so they moved us out here when we were um, kids. But yeah, it was, it was great. Growing up in Omaha, though, was a, a, it was a good experience, good place to be a kid, I think. Um, I liked it. My dad was always an Omaha, South, South Omaha boy. Is, I mean, boy, he talked about that until, until his last days. What was it that um, so appealed to him about um, about his uh, South Omaha days? 
I, I think he remembered every minute of it and every house he lived in and every every house he delivered a paper to and and his where his cousins lived and going to uh, Vincent High or Vincent Elementary School and oh my gosh that man remembered everything. There is a very good and enjoyable lit fest yearly in. Um, Omaha, and there was a, a brief hiatus a few years ago, but it kickstarted again last year. I'm curious if you play an, an active role in lit fests uh, either around you, or if you even travel um, far away to go to lit fests. You know, um, I haven't much. There's Word Wordstock here in Portland is a big one, and it's great. And I um, I talk once about book bloggers at um, at Wordstock. Um, and, but, you know, I go when I can, I like to see authors, Powell's books is, is here, of course, and they bring in authors all the time. So I, I tend to go there to see individual authors do their readings and, and talks or to some of the other bookstores around town when they bring in authors rather than to the whole festivals. Um, but I did see like all of the, um, Big festivals are doing virtual things these days. The Hey on Why was this weekend or is going on right now. So I've been kind of doing more of the, the virtual ones without, so you can do the festival without the crowd. One thing I like about um, the New York Times book review is um, they, they interview someone and uh, there are a couple of questions that I'd, I'd like to put to you. Uh, one is about a book that someone should be reading. And I wonder if you have a recommendation for a book that, that everybody should be reading at this time, um, this time meaning a global pandemic. So uh, do you have a, a recommendation in that regard? Well, off the top of my head, I would think The Hollow Kingdom. Um, what, what's her name? Uh, the Hollow Kingdom. It's the one where there is a, a computer virus that turns all people into zombies and the narrator is a talking crow. And it's set in Seattle. And it is hilarious and it just came out it's brand new maybe people aren't in the mood for a zombie apocalypse book i have never read a zombie book in my life and it is brilliantly funny and the talking crow is hilarious that sounds great so is that is that the one by um kyra or kira jane buxton that's it so i i think that's a good one for right now um and then the other one that I have been recommending to people just as, just for no particular reason other than um, I, I just put up a list of just books that are appealing to me right now. The other one was um, Past Imperfect by Julian Fellows, just because I think it's a book that disappeared. It, it, it's like a, a forgotten favorite that I don't think people read it. And I think it was just wonderful and brilliant. And if you're looking for a book to get engrossed in and be entertained by and forget everything that's going on, that that's my universal recommendation. And then if you could have, you know, three literary figures dead or alive, um, who, who would, who would you invite to your uh, dinner table? Uh, it would be Kingsley Amos. Iris Murdoch and Muriel Spark. And any particular reason why? 
Kingsley Amos to bring the wine <laughs> and, and make us all laugh. Um, uh, Iris Murdoch to talk philosophy and um, maybe make us think. And Muriel Spark to um, also be very funny with Kingsley Amos and um, probably make us think more religiously. So, yeah. My guest today has been Gillian Dumas, an attorney specializing in sexual abuse cases and also an avid book reader, list maker, and blogger. Gillian, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Well, thank you, Stuart. It's been fun. That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.